In the 1970s, the LPGA Tour was in desperate need of a change. The tour was being run by a group of players, a lawsuit left it nearly bankrupt, and the schedule was dotted with meager tournaments and small purses. The first step to save the LPGA was to hire the tour's first commissioner. Ray Volpe came in with a controversial plan that revolved around a fashion magazine and the tour's pretty young Rookie of the Year. Her name was Jan Stevenson. Volpe saw Stevenson as more than a player. She was a marketing tool to bring more eyes to the LPGA Tour. After all, a more popular tour meant more sponsorship money, more TV time, bigger purses, and more events, all of which became a reality. But the means by which it was pursued wasn't universally embraced. Volpe used the oldest marketing trick in the books, sex appeal. From her photo shoots in a nightgown to a bathtub full of golf balls, Stevenson faced backlash from fellow competitors who thought marketing players' appearance diminished their abilities as athletes. Stevenson became known for the controversies that never stopped following her during her time playing on the tour in the 70s and 80s. From the criticism for being a sex icon, to the famous men she dated, to the time she was removed from a golf course and brought to a psychiatric hospital, to the mugging that left her with broken fingers. But she should be known for more. You know, I kind of just shrugged my shoulders and went, you know, if this is what's going to help the tour, I've just got to enjoy it. So I did this, but so long ago that nobody even knows how close we were to losing the tour. And what I did was a sacrifice for all of us. I'm Keely Levins, and this is Local Knowledge where we take a deep dive into the most compelling stories in golf. This week, we're looking at the life of Jan Stevenson and the LPGA's bold plan to make a young player known for more than just the way she hit a golf ball. We'll look at how Stevenson's stories represented a challenge that still exists in women's sports today. And we'll talk to Stevenson and others to figure out who exactly Jan was, why she agreed to become the face of the tour, what it did for the LPGA, and what it did for, and to, her. To understand why a sexualized marketing plan seemed like the best idea to a new commissioner back then, we have to first understand where the tour was when Volpe took over. In 1972, Jane Blaylock won the Dinosaur, now known as the ANA Inspiration. A month later, she was accused of incorrectly replacing her marker while playing in the Bluegrass Invitational. At that point, the tour didn't have, and had never had, a commissioner. It was run by an executive committee made up of five players. That committee suspended Blaylock over the cheating accusations. This led to a whole legal back and forth that was not only really expensive for the tour, but it underscored the tour's need for a commissioner. They hired their first in 1975, Ray Volpe. Volpe was not a golfer, but as a marketing executive with the NHL, he did know how to sell sports. My background was to market sports, Volpe said in a 1979 New York Times article, and the LPGA had to be sold. In his first season, Volpe inherited a schedule that included 27 tournaments, with a total season purse of $1.3 million. A tour that had been around for 25 years still needed more people to care about it. The goal is always to, to, to get more eyes on the product. Uh, I'm, you know, in the 30 some years I've been around the LPGA, I always find that 
the biggest critics of women's golf, both among the fans and the media, are people who don't go to the tournaments, people who don't experience the product. Ron Syrak, formerly of Golf Digest and Golf World, has covered the LPGA for over three decades. When Volpe came in, that's what he needed to do. He needed to get people to experience the product. And I'm a big believer that um, any way you can get people into the tent is good for the product, ultimately. When it came to how exactly to get those eyes on the tour, Volpe looked to his tour's most recent Rookie of the Year and came up with a plan. Jan Stevenson was 22 years old when she came to America from Australia to try to earn her tour card at Q School. She came from hardworking, athletic parents who had supported her quest to become a professional golfer. I was always fascinated with America, and as I started to play and win, win golf events as an amateur and as a junior, I was so fascinated with the tour that, you know, a, a golf magazine like Golf Digest or Golf Magazine in Australia to get an American one would cost like $12 or something by the time you'd get it down there. So at the Sydney Library, they would they had that subscription. So I would get, after school, I would get in a bus and go to the Sydney Library and pour through the golf magazines. And I had no idea what it was going to be. I thought I, you know, I was studying America. I thought I would, would fit right in, but it was so hard because, you know, you you're driving on the other side of the road and you don't have anyone to talk to. To help quell the homesickness, Stevenson was calling her parents every night. And since she hadn't traveled much to that point, she had no idea how expensive international calls from a hotel room could be. She'd racked up enough in phone bills to take a major chunk out of the money she'd save for traveling and competing on the tour the following year. So I took a taxi down to the airport and um, I cashed in my return ticket to back home and said, if I don't make it, I, I, I have to make it. I have to qualify or I'm not going to call my parents and have them help me home. I have got to make it. So I was down to like $500 and I cashed in my return ticket just to have enough to make it through qualifying. Without a ticket home, Stevenson had no choice but to play well. She finished second in qualifying to Pat Bradley. The next week, she finished second in a match play event. She was off and running. And the next year, the new commissioner, Ray Volpe, took notice. I won Rookie of the Year, so in 75, he said, I need something to change, that it's, you know, that the tour is changing and in a new image. And so he, um, he came out to an event, and, uh, and I had, a, you know, a pretty big gallery and little short shorts on, and he goes, this is what I want. I want someone that I know can play so they can't say I only chose somebody that, you know, looks, looks the part, but that can actually play golf. Volpe flew her to the LPGA's new offices in New York City, which he'd moved from Atlanta. Once there, Stevenson said that he laid out his vision for how the tour would promote her heavily as it sought to add more sponsors. When Stevenson asked about how this would all benefit her golf, the commissioner didn't really have much of an answer. His focus was on something beyond her personal playing career. He saw what she could do for the tour as a whole. He started a magazine, which was to feature players and be included in every tournament program. And one of them, I was actually, it was in a nightgown, but, it, but I was on a bed with my dress hiked up. And, and uh, that just caused all kinds of problems, which, 
you know, and the controversy was huge, but it's, he loved it because he said, this is what we want. But up until then, if, if they're worried about what Jan is wearing or what she's doing or, what, you know, whether she's got a bra on, who cares? It's getting people talking about you and it's getting people to come out. And that means the media will, the TV will cover it, which is exactly what happened. The magazine, called Fairway Magazine, featured players including Stevenson all posing in non-golf outfits. It was the first example of what was to be a trend of marketing based on sex appeal. While Stevenson and others were in support of the new tactic, it wasn't popular with everyone. Some were strongly opposed. World Golf Hall of Famer Amy Alcott was on tour at the same time as Stevenson, and she remembers mixed opinions about Volpe's methods. I think that was kind of a period in time um, that he saw still, you know, uh, women's golf as uh, an important part of it was kind of quote-unquote stelly sex, you know, the attractiveness. And then that's where the, the, the Jan's kind of, um, uh, the genesis of Jan <laughs> kind of came, came into it. So, um, you know, people were critical of him that, you know, he was doing something that didn't take women seriously, but he was also trying to build a brand, as they say nowadays, and I think he did a great job of it. At player meetings, Jan recalls the sentiment being split, with Volpe fending off accusations from players who said he was selling sex over golf. And he goes, it's not sex, it's sex appeal. And then he would say, everything is sold that way in marketing, believe me. And and he goes, you're going to thank her in the end because the galleries and I'm going to have, you know, we're all, we're going to be on TV. And we did, we had enormous galleries. So after a year, they started to see what he was talking about. Because the first year they were dead against it. I mean, I'd walk into a locker room and they'd be silenced because I know they were talking about me and, you know, and a lot of the players didn't like it. But I think Jan handled it well. I mean, looking back now at the t- that time in the 70s, late 70s and 80s that, uh, you know, she brought the tour a lot of attention. And uh, even though there were players that thought, oh, my God, here we go again with some magazine cover or something like that, and they weren't getting the attention, I think that that's kind of a, in a way, as a professional athlete, uh, that's an inside job you have to do with, you know, your own personal security, how you feel about stuff. Let's pause here to note where female athletes were at this time. Title IX had just been passed in 1972, essentially telling women that they would be supported in their athletics. They were going to be treated seriously as athletes. While that messaging was empowering women to be athletes, Players argued that the LPGA Tour's marketing message seemed to be saying something different. That being an athlete wasn't enough. You had to be something else, too. Attractive. Competition has long been associated with masculinity. There's this belief that you can't be both feminine and a competitor. But Stevenson proved you could. Sure, she knew how to do her makeup, her hair, how to pick flattering outfits and didn't shy away from poses that were more sexual than golf-centric. But when it came time to compete, she didn't hold back. Well, there was a major split, and, and, and the split was probably more against it than for it. But uh, because 
because, uh, you know, by the time, say, 1980, so the tour had been going for 30 years, for 30 years, the tour had been trying to get people, mainly men, to take them seriously as athletes. What Jan did that, in my mind, made it uh, uh, work, she won. She wasn't Anna Kornikova, you know, she wasn't Anna Kornikova who never won a tennis tournament, but was but is still one of the most Googled names that you can find out there. Far from just a pretty face, Stevenson won 16 times on tour. Three of those were majors. It's not like Volby just picked the prettiest girl he could find and put her photo everywhere. He picked a champion. But that didn't stop other players from talking about her or from complaining about the cheapness of using sex to sell the tour. One of the most public displays of distaste with the situation came from Jane Blaylock, who wrote an article for the Miami Herald calling the photographs of Fairway magazine quasi-pornography. As she wrote, Is our organization so unaware of the real glamour and attraction, skillful play, staring it in the face, that it must resort to such trash? I'm sure we can all agree that women should be able to be marketed as athletes without relying on sexual appeal. But in the 1970s, with the tour in a precarious state, the tour was marketing from a position of desperation. Choosing to market with sex appeal was a safe bet in a sense, because it had a track record of working. It's a no-win situation for women. We tend to overlook the fact that some of the most popular male golfers of all times have all been really good-looking guys. Arnold Palmer had movie star good looks when he came along, Tiger Woods, Fred Couples, Phil Mickelson. You know, there's a reason that played into their, there's a reason they were more popular than Craig Stadler, but the men can get away with doing that. We don't, we, we, we don't stumble at all over the fact that we talk about uh, how ripped Tiger is and, and how muscular he is and everything. But, but if, a, if a woman presents herself in that way, it becomes an issue. If you're going to gamble on golf, you may as well do it right. And for any golf fan who's curious about betting on golf but hasn't gotten serious about it, we have the podcast for you. Be Right is Golf Digest's weekly gambling podcast featuring the latest PGA Tour intel and picks from an expert panel that is up nearly 300 units this season. That's a gambling term, by the way. With thoughts from some of fantasy sports' brightest minds and even an anonymous tour caddy at our side, we've done our best to turn betting on golf into a science to help you make money off golf. While we can't promise that you'll come out ahead every week, we can guarantee you'll be well-informed and entertained along the way. So stop doing golf wagers wrong and join us on Be Right. As the tour was getting attention for its marketing of Stevenson, it received a boost from another star joining the tour, Nancy Lopez. She won nine times in 1978, which was her rookie year, and then another eight times the following year. People love Nancy, to the point that Volpe put her and Stevenson at different ends of the tournament draws, the hope being if people came to watch Lopez, they'd stay and watch Stevenson, and vice versa. That way, people were coming out to tournaments and staying all day. Nancy had a lot of family-oriented people, and I had a lot of male people following me, so we used to joke about the difference in the gallery. So it was, it, it was actually a fun time by then because... I had Nancy to lean on as well, and we used to, our lockers would always be, they always tease how many, it looked like wallpaper, we'd have all these little notes from media to call and who wants an interview, and, and it, was, it was fun, I mean, it was a lot of work, but it was fun. 
The work part of it is something that's easy to overlook. Stevenson's marketing work for the tour was basically a second job. Hollis Stacy, who won 18 times on tour, was in Jan's rookie class on the LPGA tour. She worked with Ray in securing sponsors and she really worked her tail off. Uh, uh, a lot of people uh, never gave her credit for it, but I know, you know, she did work really hard for the tour and got us, you know, helped get us some great sponsors. It was enough that Stevenson felt it was impacting her game. And in 77, I was doing so much, you know, I was, uh, I'd be flying to do Johnny Carson and then going back to do something in New York and then showing up on Tuesday night with no practice round. And it did, it did hurt my game because up until I got in the Hall of Fame a couple of years ago, I was really down about the fact that I look back at some of the, I would have won more events if I had it just focused like the other players were allowed to do. Of course, there was a personal benefit too. Purses on the LPGA Tour grew in the 70s and 80s, but placing in tournaments didn't promise a comfortable life. The first tournament Stevenson won, her winner's check was $8,500. With the level of celebrity she reached off the course, she was getting more sponsors and was being paid big appearance fees to show up at different events. Every time we'd go play a tournament, I'd be on the front, you know, the front of the paper and all the magazines. And, and that part was fun, but it, it was really taking its toll. I remember in 77, I was really upset because I didn't win a tournament and I felt like that hurt. So then when I sat with the commissioner and I said, you know, I, I think this is hurting that towards the end of the year, I, we were in Japan and I just said, you know, I think the reason I didn't win was because even though I had a really good scoring average, that one little stroke from being tied and not seeing a practice, you know, not having a practice round, um, you know, I, I felt like it was really hurting me. And he said, well, why don't you rest this winter and, and uh, I'll try to, now that we've got Lopez doing so much, I'll see if we, she can do some media stuff as well. Though Stevenson was struggling to balance her performance as a golfer with her off-course persona, there was no denying the success of the marketing strategy. Five years after Stevenson joined the tour, there were now 35 events, and the total purse for the season had more than doubled. The LPGA Tour had momentum, and Stevenson's role was apparent at every tournament. You know, I was like the closest locker to Jan Stevenson. So... I would, you know, I always knew when she was playing because, you know, there would be all these notes taped to her locker. Then there would be flowers on the top of the locker. The life she was living off the course looked different from what any LPGA Tour player or really any female athlete had ever lived. Stevenson was linked to a series of high-profile men, even if some of those were setups. He'd say, okay... I'm going to set you up to go have dinner with, say, Ed Mariner, the running back for the Jets, and we're, you're going to go to this restaurant, and AP, and he would have already let AP know, and so we'd be seen there. And then when I'd go to Cincinnati to play the LPGA Championship, he'd say, you're going to go down, and we're going to take pictures with you, um, with Johnny Bench, and you're going to be at, at um, baseball practice, you know, hitting hitting balls, and then you're going to be seen, and then we're going to go to dinner here, and the is going to pick it all up. And so it, it looked like I was having this amazing dating life, but um, 
it was very, very well done, you know, but it was still fun. While she was linked to athletes and entertainers, Stevenson says her life in reality was far less glamorous. At heart, she was a family girl. Her parents had come over from Australia and traveled with her. Her dad caddied. Her priority was not fame, but golf. And other players took note. So she was always the last person to leave and then practice too, you know. So she, she did work really hard game, so. As she's gotten older, we've gotten older, I think she was misunderstood, you know. And Jan's a very likable person, you know. She she wanted to be taken as a taken as a serious golfer, even though the promotional side was a whole other side. In some ways, Stevenson was ahead of her time. I worked out before workout was ever heard of. I had people say golf is, shouldn't be working out. Why are you at the gym? And I would be at the gym at night um, before anyone even thought about it. You know, I mean. A lot of it, yeah, the cardio stuff I did was obviously because I, I had to be in very little clothing all the time. <laughs> but, um, you know, I was just something that I'd done my whole life with my dad. So I was used to working out. And But it was funny because you see all these people. I, sometimes they see me yawn and go, oh, she was probably out again last night with some, some hottie or some celeb, when in actual fact I was probably working. Over time, though, Stevenson's life got more complicated, particularly her personal life. There was a situation that resulted in her being taken from a tournament by a police officer and taken to a psychiatric hospital. She'd had a longtime boyfriend, but then she went on tour with her manager. She came back and broke her foot while playing racquetball and ended up marrying the manager. After I started recovering, I'm like, what have I done? I didn't even know this guy. There was a loophole to getting out of the marriage. She'd been with her previous boyfriend long enough to qualify for common-law marriage. He said, if I sue you for common-law marriage, then your, this marriage would have to be null and void. And so I went, oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> so I can get out of this marriage. So we went to this horrible court case of going back and forwards and doing all this stuff. And, and so we got an, I got an annulment and we paid him a bunch of money. Unfortunately, that wasn't enough to keep him away. Stevenson says he'd called the police, saying Stevenson was a danger to herself. That's what got her removed from the golf course. Luckily, the LPGA called a local, a local lawyer and he showed up and said, I've heard about this case. Can you fill me in? And, but it was, I was up all night long in this horrible place. It was scary. Jan kept it under control during the questioning process at the hospital. And with the help of a lawyer, they had to let her go. She was there most of the night, but got out in time to play the tournament and ended up making the cut. Stevenson and the tour tried their best to keep the situation quiet. But with a story like that, it was almost impossible to contain. And I'm looking at the National Enquirer and I can't remember the other one was, and it said, um, professional golfer married to two men. And I'm like, Professional golf, who could that be? And then I went, oh shit, that's me. Golf's cerebral demands make it hard to imagine someone could perform with so much distraction going on off the course. But one of the incredible things about Stevenson was her ability to compartmentalize. She was fabulous as far as, you know, making that six-footer to win the tournament. You know, she, she handled pressure. She was 
a very strong competitor. And then the media were there. They, all they wanted to do was ask questions about that, and it was so hard. But thank God my father was caddying because once I got inside the ropes, they couldn't touch me, you know, and it was just nice to just be left alone and play golf. Even with everything going on off the course, Stevenson won the LPGA championship that year. It was her second major. The following year, she won the U.S. Women's Open. All of the controversy that followed Stevenson resulted in more backlash from fellow tour members. As one unnamed player was famously quoted in the New York Times, Jan Stevenson, the prettiest girl to have a lot of golf talent, is a walking soap opera. And one must bet that like all soap operas, if it isn't this current thing, it'll be something else. Soap operas are not supposed to ever end, are they? But Stevenson did want all of that to end. After everything she'd been through, she was realizing that she was getting farther away from the goals that she had as a 22-year-old girl trying to make it on the LPGA Tour. She wanted to win golf tournaments. She wanted to be great. In 86, I sat down and went, you know what? The only thing I love is playing golf, so I'm going to work so hard this winter, and I'm going to, I'm just going to devote myself to being where I should have been without all of this controversy and all of this sex symbol stuff. I'm just going to go play golf. And so I worked really hard on my game, and I got really fit. And um, I said, you know, the next goal I'm going to have is I want to be number one. That 1987 season started off really well. Her first win came in April. But a week later, at the next event in Florida, she was thrown off course again. I was just driving back to the hotel to just have dinner, and I was, I was so happy because if I won that event, I would become number one. And I was like, I've done it. You know, I was so excited. And um, then next thing you know, a girl ran a red light, was on drugs, smashed into my courtesy card. Fortunately, Stevenson was wearing a seatbelt, but she still hit her head and broke her ribs. And when the ambulance came to take me, they said, okay, and I went, wait, wait, get the putter out of my trunk. I'm going to play tomorrow. And everybody just laughed. You know, they thought I was, and I was serious. I still thought I was going to try to play because all I had to do was, you know, I had a five-shot lead. And, uh, of course, the next day I couldn't move. Desperate to be number one and to get back to competing, Stevenson didn't give her ribs enough time to heal. She'd get her ribs taped up before each round, but they hurt with every shot. The only person who could talk some sense into her was Jack Nicholas when the two were playing together at an exhibition. Jack Nicholas sat me down and said, what are you doing trying to play with broken ribs? And I said, I just, I, I wanted to be number one. I want to get back so badly. And he said, I'm going to tell you right now, the only way you can play is take off till they heal. And I, and I said, no, no. And he said, look, we all know you can hit the ball great. And what's the weak, weakest part of your game? And I said, my short game. And he said, well, if I were you, I would take off, let the ribs heal, and practice putting. That won't hurt your ribs until you become a great putter. She took two months off, putted, worked on her short game, and then came back and won two more events before the season ended. She'd missed too many tournaments to be number one in the world, but she believes if there was a season where it was going to happen, that was it. With her game in a good place, the next season looked promising. But 1988 wasn't without trauma either. Her parents, who usually traveled with her, had been staying in Australia. She kept asking them why they hadn't made it out to watch her at all. And finally, her father's doctor told her that her father had cancer. Stevenson traveled home. Her father died that year. 
89 and 90, I was a wreck. I just couldn't play. You know, it was, I was so upset and so miserable. And then I just said, you know what, I've got to shake myself out of this. Any attempts to regain focus after her father's death were again thrown off course when she was in Miami in 1990. And that's when I got bugged and broke, um, and dislocated my shoulder and broke my left hand. And after that, I never had any power. The three fingers that were broken that night don't close correctly. So Stevenson still isn't able to grip a club properly. Instead, only holding a club with her forefinger and thumb with her left hand. That led to a swing change, and her game was never the same. Although Stevenson kept playing, she never again won on the LPGA Tour. A career that existed in such a spotlight for so long, eventually faded away. Since then, Stevenson helped start and won on the Women's Senior Tour, which is now known as the Legends Tour. She studied under Pete Dye to learn course design and has been designing and renovating golf courses, now running one of her own. And she also runs and owns a wine and liquor label. If she sounds busy, it's because she is. The day before we spoke for this podcast, she'd been at Brittany Lincecone's fundraiser event with current LPGA Tour players. It was so great for me. I mean, I'm not even sure if they really understand, but to see them in these gorgeous outfits and, you know, their hair done beautifully and these little tiny short skirts that I was always in trouble for. And it's actually, um, you know, it made me, kind of made me smile, but it was, it was really nice that they, you know, obviously have taken it to another level. Stevenson looks at the tour now and sees the television time they're getting, the sponsors, the $76.5 million in annual purse money. When I see all those young players yesterday, I mean, it's wonderful to see how great they look and, and what they're enjoying. And, you know, you can't help but be envious. You know, I'm not jealous or miserable, but I'm just like, God, they don't know how lucky and how what a great life they have. Because as much as I, like I teach people now and they go, you work so hard. And it's like, you know what? And they said, you worked so hard at golf, but... I loved it because if I had it over again, I would probably work even harder. I wouldn't maybe do as much of the, certainly of the promotion and the PR stuff. I definitely think I would work harder at my game because in the end, there's nothing like winning. And I, I really, really miss it. And maybe if I'd have finished without being forced to finish, you know, the way I finished, being, the way I was, had to go away from it without having Working that hard and not having it pay off, you know, that part is probably the, the hardest part to me to face. For a woman who took so much of her destiny and the destiny of the tour in her own hands, I can see how that would be hard to come to terms with. But the bitterness was sweetened in 2019 when Stevenson was inducted into the World Golf Hall of Fame, a moment earned only by her performance on the golf course. But Stevenson is still unsure that the work she did off course has been understood. So if you look at the legacy, I would have liked to have had the younger players appreciate what I've done instead of just not even knowing who I am when I show up yesterday. Um, that, that part of it is really hurts. Um, and you know, they're so young, they have no idea. What I would like people to think about me is that, that I really did help the tour.
Local Knowledge is produced by Greg Gottfried with editorial guidance from Sam Weinman. Our music is Spirit of Freedom by Lobo Loco. You can subscribe to Local Knowledge wherever you get your podcasts, and we welcome a review as well. Also, for expert picks, betting advice, and insight into the action on the PGA Tour, please also make sure to subscribe to our Be Right podcast.